Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, my friends, and happy Christmas. Welcome to the first Christmas special from the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm absolutely delighted that the podcast has made it to its first Christmas. And to celebrate, I'm going to sit down with a glass of single malt and we can talk about Dickens' A Christmas Carol together. Okay, so what is The Christmas Carol? Surely you don't need me to tell you the story of Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Everyone knows Tiny Tim and Ebenezer Scrooge and the Three Ghosts, right? It's almost a cliché now. Scrooge is mean, some ghosts turn up, and then happy endings all round. Hmm... So, looks like we've got some myths and misconceptions to clear up, because, as always on the podcast, the reality is a bit more complicated. The full title of A Christmas Carol is actually A Christmas Carol in Prose, being a ghost story of Christmas. It was published in 1843, and it was Dickens launching a savage attack on Victorian society. It was not intended to be the Muppet Christmas Carol. Although actually, the Muppet Christmas Carol is a very good adaptation. Well worth watching whilst you are eating an Easter egg. Dickens was actually an acutely sensitive campaigner for the poor and a fierce critic of society turning a blind eye to suffering. It is one of the most important works Dickens ever wrote, not just because it is a genuine classic, combining deep characters with a great storyline and timeless themes, but also because it probably saved Dickens' career and kept him writing. You see, when Dickens wrote the book, he was up to his eyeballs in debt. His previous books, American Notes for General Circulation and also Martin Chuzzlewit's, were flops. He was being docked salary by his publishers and had a fifth child on the way just as he had leased and refurbished a new home for the family. The strain must have been intense. The Victorians had little mercy for those who fell into debt or poverty. Dickens couldn't help himself. He loved to entertain and kept a merry table with whiskey, rum and brandy always on hand for guests. He was also a notable giver to charities and always carried change for beggars if he could. What is shocking to us, though, is that it wasn't only his own debts and lifestyle he was trying to support. He inherited his father's debts. He knew what it was to be grindingly poor. At twelve years old, his father had been dragged off to debtor's prison. Dickens had been forced to work in a blacking factory to pay bills. He eventually escaped poverty through his writing only to find his father and brothers had taken out more loans in his name without his knowledge. Whilst today, that would never leave him liable for loans taken out without his knowledge, in Victorian England, he was on the hook for it. Dickens was in a bind and felt crushed by his family. He needed a hit and he needed it fast. 
he went for his nightly walks. He was a gifted journalist, an observer of human nature. The streets and the people on it were carefully recorded. He could find material and inspiration everywhere. For example, it has been suggested that the name Ebenezer came from the Ebenezer Temperance Society. Dickens hated the hypocrites who he saw saved souls only to try to force people to lead joyless and controlled lives. Early drafts included Tiny Fred, who became Tiny Tim, and was based on Dickens' sickly nephew, Henry Burnett. Dickens crafted a masterpiece based on observation, inspiration and scathing social critique. He did it in six weeks. Yes, I really do mean that. He started writing in mid-October and was finished six weeks later. Arguably one of the finest, most important pieces of modern literature, one that essentially created the modern Christmas, done in six weeks. That makes my jaw drop. I'll never understand why George R. Martin can't take a leaf from Dickens here. I do mean it when I say that we owe a lot of credit to Dickens for Christmas. He was writing in 1843. Many of the quintessentials that we consider key to Christmas were actually absent. Christmas was a much more haphazard affair and frankly it was much more of an old Christian festival celebrated in the country. People in Victorian cities were almost unsure how to celebrate it and Dickens was giving them a template. But this very novelty and difference shows you why some familiar elements like Christmas trees and Christmas cards are wholly absent because they were wholly unknown to the early Victorians. Unfortunately, Dickens got a bit carried away. He knew he had a blockbuster on his hands so it's to be published in a rush with gilt covers and edging and lavish illustrations coloured by hand for all of the initial 6,000 copies to be done in 16 days. It cost him immensely. He fell out with his publishers and paid for the printing with his own money. All 6,000 copies sold quickly. But once the costs were stripped out, Dickens only made a quarter of what he needed. The family teetered on the brink of financial ruin and they fled to Italy to save on living costs. Soon though, more copies began to move. People demanded that Dickens appear on tour and read the book himself. Soon he was almost a rock star. People were sleeping on the pavements, queuing all night to see him in person reading the book. Finally, success was his. Money flowed in. Most acclaimed the book, but some of the rich quietly seethed. What was the point of having money if you had to share it? Why didn't the Victorian people see that the rich were only rich because of their own virtue? Surely people understood that poverty was only a moral failing, they reasoned. The poor were poor because it was their own fault. It was up to the wealth creators of industry and the aristocracy to enjoy the fruits of their own brilliance, not the common poor who laboured and died in the mines and shipyards and factories. A Christmas carol was a savage slap across their faces for these attitudes. A powerful reminder 
that their wealth was in truth, not because of their own worth, but because of the labour and suffering of thousands of nameless others. It challenged them that the only point of wealth was to make life better for everyone. Marley was the destiny of all who couldn't see beyond just making money for themselves. Dickens, meanwhile, was busy spending his new wealth, not just on paying off debts, but also in making the world a better place. He had no desire to wear Marley's chains. He set up a halfway house to help London's population and prostitutes. It provided uniforms, food, shelter and, of course, educational training to help them become teachers or governesses. He understood that investing in skills, support and training were fundamental to getting people out of poverty rather than telling them that they were failures who didn't work hard enough. Nor did he believe that the poor somehow needed punishment to work hard whereas the rich needed incentives. The practical fact was that the poor of Victorian London were all incredibly hard-working, even if they were criminals. The lazy didn't survive long or prosper, unless they were rich. Sadly, even Dickens was not without his flaws. He seems to have had a midlife crisis and had an affair with an 18-year-old actress called Nettie Turner. He kicked his wife out of the house. Now that sounds like the classic heartless villain of Victorian melodrama, but it is notable that he kept the children with him and got his sister to help him raise them. It is always exceptionally hard to know the inner workings of a marriage. We rarely see the private pains, know the arguments or disillusion or heartbreaks that actually lead to the end. So we need to be careful in making too many assumptions about either side. Now, we have seen the background to writing the novel, so let's have a look in more detail at the working question. It is set at Christmas, but it starts evocatively, almost playful, yet with a nice undertone of menace. Quote, Marley was dead to begin with. There was no doubt about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner, end quote. We are invited to begin almost as if it is going to be a comedy, that somehow there is a mistake, and that actually Marley was really alive. He's not, of course. Marley is emphatically dead. But what a hook of a first line. It is easy to forget that Marley is one of the central linchpins of this story. It is easy to think that A Christmas Carol is only or mainly about Scrooge. It is and it isn't. He is certainly the central character and it is his journey of redemption that we watch. But the story is much more about the underlying themes of redemption, of renouncing the obsession with money and alleged virtue to actually moving to do real good to the poor. What is often overlooked is just how critical Marley himself is to this story. We see him only at the beginning, and he is ostensibly only here to set the steen and introduce the stars of the story. That is to deeply underplay what Marley is and what he represents. Marley is the embodiment of what happens 
if the chance of redemption is rejected. To reject the chance he is actually being offered by Marley, Scrooge would be courting a kind of damnation. And yet, he very nearly rejects his second chances. Before we meet Marley, though, we have one of the seminal pieces of dialogue in the whole story. You are confident you can quote the line exactly. Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Well, actually, the passage is longer than you might recall, with a bit more nuance. A group of charity collectors arrive at Scrooge's office. Quote, At this festive time of year, Mr Scrooge, said the gentleman, taking up a pen, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute, who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comfort, sir. Are there no prisons? asked Scrooge. Plenty of prisons, said the gentleman, laying down the pen again. And the union workhouses, demanded Scrooge, are they still in operation? They are, still, returned the gentleman. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigour then, said Scrooge. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course, said Scrooge. I'm very glad to hear it. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude, returned the gentleman, a few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time, because it is a time of all others, when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What should I put you down for? Nothing, Scrooge replied. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me, I don't know that. But you might know it, observed the businessman. It's not my business, Scrooge returned. It's enough for a man to understand his own business, not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good day, gentlemen, end quote. Now that quote is far longer and has far more detail than hidden meaning. The charity workers clearly want to improve the conditions of the poor. They view the workhouses and prisons as a blight on society. Scrooge actually echoes a sentiment held by much of Victorian society, that the workhouse is a charitable mercy. Indeed, he views them as too generous and has no patience for those who won't work. He doesn't say that he wants the poor to die en masse, although that is certainly implied. He has no sympathy for those who refuse the workhouse or prison. And these he views as having spurned the charity that has been generously provided, and thus have made themselves surplus. 
a way, this is more horrific. He feels he is being correct and charitable, and that those who don't want to slave in these conditions have no one to blame but themselves. To him, they are mere objects, drains on society and spurners of its help and charity. To him, it is self-evident that society has been far more generous than the recipients deserve. I've not got to workhouses in the show, and they need a lot more depth than I can go into here. Just remember that they were designed to be awful, to discourage perceived laziness. One real problem with them was the very nature of the brutal work for inmates often damaged the workers' bodies too much to allow them to do other kinds of work. So an artisan or a craftsman might through debt end up in a workhouse and then heavy manual labour damages the mobility of his hands, preventing him earning the extra money he would need to actually leave the workhouse, becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is particularly telling that Scrooge at first decries knowledge of the plight of the poor, then decides it is not his business. So here Dickens has used Scrooge to set up an indictment, the common attitudes to the poor in Victorian society. Scrooge is those attitudes writ large, but he was absolutely not a caricature. He is a well-sketched-out version of many common traits. He is an amalgamation. He doesn't care about the poor, doesn't know them, and doesn't want to know them. And that attitude is frankly not confined solely to 19th century Victorian Britain. Around the streets of London, fog and cold swirled. There's often a neat sketch of the street life, and both the rich and the poor. The poor are not depicted as saintly. They are represented just as they are, neither virtuous nor wicked just human. Scrooge is rude to his clerk and finally goes home. He is troubled by faint visions of Marley in various objects. There is some biblical allegory in the text. Finally, Marley himself appears to Scrooge. He is clearly a ghost. He has a deathly aura around him. Scrooge makes protests of disbelief, but they aren't real. They are just to buy time. Scrooge can't seem to understand why Marley is a ghost in chains. To his mind, Marley was a good businessman and lived a perfectly correct life. Marley gives Scrooge the reason that the purpose of life was to live amongst your fellow people and to look outwards to strive and improve the common good. And this is why he is cursed to walk the earth. Quote, You were always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge who now began to apply this to himself. Business, cried the ghost, wringing its hands again. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. It held up its chain at arm's length as if that were the cause of its all of its unavailing grief, and flung it heavily upon the ground again. At this time of the rolling year, the spectre said, I suffer the most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings, 
with my eyes turned down and never raised them to that blessed star which led the wise men to a poor abode. Were there no poor homes to which its light might have conducted me? End quote. Yet Marley also says that there will be no release for him. This is his eternal punishment, essentially until the last judgment itself. The message is clear. Marley doesn't get redemption. He has a chance to help his former friend, but he will have to bear his chains forever. This should put Scrooge on notice what the real stakes are. This is a bone-chilling warning delivered by one of the damned. At the very least, it should confirm to Scrooge that the tales of spirits and an afterlife are real. Then he gets given a moment's sight of the street filled with spirits wearing chains and wishing they could help mortals, but forever cut off from human life. This really gets skipped over for the rest of the book. We are often invited to see Scrooge's personal pain or his journey. What that can obscure is that the fate that is in store for him if he can't genuinely change is horrific. Some critics have said that Scrooge's conversion is too fast, too down pat, that you can't just change your personality and habits like this. There is the implication that modern psychology is required to effect this change, or that somehow Dickens is writing the character poorly. That, in my view, is based on the failure to consider how cataclysmic the impact of being visited by a genuine ghost would be. Marley is not just a ghost, though. He is the voice of the genuinely damned. The cold chill of eternal pain and suffering is carried with him. Imagine how you would feel if you met a real damned ghost. Not in the ghost hunter's, ooh, this room is cold and I feel my presence type way. No, a real drag you to the grave itself and hell ghost. One that was heavy with the feel of a misty, icy graveyard on a cold night. One from whom there is no escape or deflection. You know it to your bones, blood and soul. That's got to cut through your psyche like a knife. It isn't a thing to be overlooked easily and it is going to be followed up by trips to the past in an age where there is no radio or television. It would seem all the more impossibly fantastic. I think it could easily be such a traumatic event that it would have been unbelievable if Scrooge's personality hadn't changed immensely. Why Scrooge especially? There are clearly more spirits like Marley, and so there must be more people like Scrooge. Scrooge has to stand in for all of them. Yet why is it so hard even for Scrooge to change? He is clearly holding on to his personality desperately, at the beginning at least. He is close-minded and sure of himself. That is something Dickens is deliberately depicting. He is attacking the audience members who are equally close-minded about the desperate poverty and need in Victorian Britain. It is not just whether Scrooge could make personal changes or reflect on his personal choices. The key to the whole book is that Scrooge and the reader 
must understand that everyone has to change to live a life that is a life lived for others, helping others, engaging others. Success on a personal level is recognised as meaningless if it fails to engage with others in the wider world. What is key to Scrooge's worldview is that poverty is caused at an individual level and is to be solved at an individual level. He just thinks that people should work harder and then they will stop being poor. It doesn't occur to him to look at the huge forces reshaping Victorian society and to understand that these were collective problems requiring collective resolution. Even at the end of the novel, it is still an individualist solution, albeit a redeemed one. Anyway, skipping along, after meeting Marley, Scrooge will get the famous three visits from three spirits. The first spirit, the ghost of Christmas past, takes him into his childhood. This is interesting to us as Dickens is able to give us snippets of evidence of a real world Victorian childhood. A schoolmaster, busy at the end of term, is sketched out. It is clearly a boarding school and he is working to send pupils home at the end of term. The schoolmaster is probably friendly but seems intimidating to the children. He occupies a cold room, but does give the children wine and cake. He is drinking himself, but not drunk. From the way it is presented, this is not unusual. Drinking, even during work, was much more acceptable in the Victorian era, although actual drunkenness was deeply despised. Obviously, Events like church services or formal teas would not be appropriate for real drinking. Although sherry was uh, often served, brandy and liquor were regarded as strong drinks reserved for the evening or to recover from cold or hard labour. The army and navy were especially tolerant of drinking and judges would expect to drink during their working day for most of this period. This strongly contrasts with a lot of modern British culture which might view a single glass of wine during a lunch break as an indication of alcoholism. Scrooge was taken home in a chase. He must have been around 16 at this point. He is collected by his younger sister Fran. Although not spelt out, it is clear that there is something deeply wrong with the relationship between the children and their father. At the very least, it suffered from the usual British detachment caused by sending young children to board at very, very harsh public schools. Yet there are hints that Scrooge isn't even sure he will be collected by anyone for the holidays. Scrooge at this point might well have a lot in common with many of the readers of the time. To us, it might seem a caricature, a cold man, grown up in impossibly awful childhood circumstances. But this would actually have been far more common to the middle and upper classes. I've talked in other episodes about the low value of life and the casual brutality that carried from civilian life to the military enlistment. But here 
we can almost see the effects where civilian life remains civilian life. The child grows into a scarred adult. A new scene evolves. We see Scrooge's employer, Fezziwig, along with his wife, bursting with life at Christmas celebrations. The scene is sketched with such skill. You can almost feel the heat, fun and laughter and the taste of the party foods. Above all, it is a communal celebration, inclusive and open to all. There is no question that the point is simply to bring joy to friends, not to serve a meaningless ritual or to improve his social standing or enhance his reputation. Soon after, a slightly older Scrooge breaks off an engagement with Belle, Fezziwig's daughter. Their relationship was never really set out in the text, but Dickens effortlessly brings home to us in a paragraph that this was a good relationship that has died as Scrooge has increasingly valued prosperity over anything else. We can feel the heartache, but also the rightness of the decision. He is forced to see the happy life she gains with another. Scrooge is the star of his story, but to Belle, he is just a background to the happy life she builds once he is gone. She has agency beyond Scrooge. She won't sit around and mourn or wear a faded wedding dress or wander the moors. She moved on and lived a life she chose without regret. And this makes her quite a striking figure in Victorian literature. No hysteria or grand gestures or tragedy. So, Scrooge is returned to the present by the first spirit, then quickly taken by the second. The second is initially surrounded by an ocean of plenty. And it is really interesting, when looking back, to see what Dickens is presenting to his fellow Victorians as a wondrous feast of plenty, quote, heaped on the floor to form a kind of throne where turkeys, geese, game, poultry, great joints of meat, suckling pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth night cakes and steaming, seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam, end quote. I don't know about you, but I'm sure I could find something great to eat in there. Oysters are often mentioned in Victorian cooking and writing. Mince pies are also an obvious delight. The oranges denote wealth and the exotic but are becoming available to the middle classes. Scrooge is whisked away, and we are about to be given some really good descriptions of Victorian London. There is a lot of genuine street life. People aren't out just to shop. Victorian life was much more out on the street than a lot of modern life in Britain. The shops are all small and local. People are shopping but stop to go to church when the bells are rung. We are introduced to the Cratchit family. I want you to understand 
that the Cratchits were not poor and destitute. Money is tight for them, and they are very lowly paid. Still, Bob Cratchit has an indoor job as a clerk with Scrooge. This marks him out as educated, since he can read and write. He and his family are not in the poorhouse, and they don't live in a slum or share a doss house, or even rent. This puts them a fair way above the lowest sections of Victorian society. What they don't have is anything to spare. They have little prospect of saving, so any small emergency could sink them. They have food, but not so much that the Christmas meal can be marked as a grand feast. They can afford a fire and a table and chair. Many couldn't. These objects were not a given for the most desperate of the Victorian poor. The Cratchits had clothes of a kind, and the whole family seems to have actually had jobs. In fact, I want to blow your mind a bit here. Scrooge actually pays more than the going rate for a clerk. Bob Cratchit is paid 15 shillings a week. The average clerk in an accounting house was paid 11 shillings, sixpence a week. Scrooge, for all his moaning, could have easily replaced Bob with someone cheaper. He doesn't, which is perhaps a testimony to Bob's abilities and loyalty, but is in a strange way a tribute to Scrooge himself. He asks for very hard work, but he does at least reward it in a way. More vitally, he clearly gives absolute job security as long as Cratchit continues to work hard. This in itself could be a rarity in the working class and lower middle class job sector. Seasonal labourers and many others suffered from regular stints of unemployment. For the Irish working class in England and Wales, migrating round the country to secure employment was routine. The problem that Dickens is highlighting is that the wages across the whole sector for a hard-working man are just too low, even if they were raised a few shillings by generous employers like Scrooge. Cratchit works long hours, but to a Victorian, long hours were expected from most working classes outside the aristocracy. That doesn't make Scrooge a nice person. He wasn't. But it does show that the Cratchits weren't the worst off in Victorian society by a very long way. What I find interesting here is that Scrooge is paying above the average wage and the family are all earning, yet they are still poor in both absolute and relative terms. Of course, soon we meet Tiny Tim, and here Dickens is definitely getting into pure smolts. We get whizzed around various places with the ghost, including a desperately humble miner's cottage on a moor, a remote lighthouse, and a ship at sea. The communal nature of Christmas is repeatedly emphasised. Scrooge is abruptly sent to his nephew's house. They are talking about him, mostly with pity. I'm sure he is very rich, Fred, hinted Scrooge's niece, 
At least you always tell me so. What of it, my dear? said Scrooge's nephew. His wealth is of no use to him. He doesn't do any good with it. He doesn't make himself comfortable with it. He hasn't even got the satisfaction of thinking, ha ha ha, that he's ever going to benefit us with it. This hits one of Dickens' key points. It's not about being rich per se that he's angry about. He is angry about people getting rich because of other people's work and suffering. He is even more angry that the rich simply refuse to help the poor. Indeed, he sees some of the wealthy as actually causing the misery of the poor. Consider, for example, a rich industrialist who moves to an area to open a new factory. The weavers in the area are suddenly left unemployed. The new owner hires unskilled workers at a lower rate and forces them to buy food from his own personal stores via wages paid in tokens that can only be spent at these stores. That further depresses employment as local shops are put out of business. Concepts of retraining and reskilling are almost unknown in the Victorian era, whilst in the long run the Industrial Revolution created more jobs than it destroyed, rising overall living standards, it does not follow that certain individuals were not permanently underemployed and disadvantaged as a result. Still, the evening at Scrooge's nephew's passes pleasantly. There are games of blind man's buff and singing, accompanied by a harp. It is a very middle-class home indeed, far more comfortable than the Cratchits. Now that does make me wonder, Fred, Scrooge's nephew, is presented as a nice chap who laughs and socialises and chides Scrooge for his lack of engagement in the world. What we don't know is what kind of charity or social activism he is really engaged in. Does he donate? Does he hand out food to the poor? Support the local relief funds, perhaps through the parish? Does he employ people with good labour conditions? Is he a political campaigner or a journalist? We aren't told. The assumption is that because he is friendly, then he is more generous than Scrooge. But if he is only talking a good game and confining his generosity to his friends, then is he really any better? The end result would be the same for those in need. Anyway, before the ghost of Christmas present fades, he shows Scrooge numerous festive scenes. Finally, he shows Scrooge two near-skeletal children. Quote, Scrooge started back, appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say that they were fine children, but the words choked themselves, rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are man's, said the spirit, looking down upon them. And they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. 
beware them both and all of their degree, but most of all, beware this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Deny it, cried the spirit, stretching out its arm towards the city. Slander those who tell it ye, admit it for your factious purposes and make it worse and bide the end. Have they no refuge or resource? cried Scrooge. Are there no prisons? said the spirit, turning on him for the last time with his own words. Are there no workhouses? End quote. These are recognisable as some of the key words of the modern welfare state. Bevan will be well outside scope of this podcast I'm afraid but his goal of abolishing ignorance, poverty, squalor and want finds its first germ of an idea here. Dickens is representing a philosophical plank be one of the crowning glories of western civilization, the modern welfare state. As the spirit fades the next and most feared of the ghosts arrived. The ghost of Christmas future. This is pretty much a full-on death allegory. Scrooge is shown the circumstances of his own death, alone, mocked, robbed by his caregivers and unmourned. Dickens takes time to sketch us a street scene. It nicely shows how unpleasant London could be outside the streets of the rich and beyond the fashionable salons. Quote, they left the busy scene and went into an obscure part of the town where Scrooge had never penetrated before, although he recognised its situation and bad repute. The ways were foul and narrow, the shops and houses wretched, the people half-naked, drunken, slipshod and ugly, alleys and archways like so many cesspools disgorged their offences of smell and dirt and life upon the straggling streets and the whole quarter reeked with crime, with filth and misery, end quote. Notice that crime is not merely mentioned but almost linked to sanitary conditions as if dirt led to moral corruption. This is the part of the city where real poverty and desperation begin. Those clinging to life above starvation and disaster by their own fingernails live here. Many would have been familiar with the pawnbrokers, scavengers, drunks, prostitutes, rag and bone merchants and others who teetered desperately over the abyss of the workhouse or death in the slums from drink or starvation. At a slum house, the looters have gathered. The future dead Scrooge has been looted on his deathbed. Even his bedclothes, sheets, curtains, and almost anything small and portable has been taken. Even the finest shirt, which would have normally been used for burial clothes, has been stolen. Present Scrooge, doesn't yet realise that it is future Scrooge who has died. 
yet he is utterly horrified. To the Victorians, death and burial were extremely serious matters, even more so than to a modern person. That might strike us as odd that the Victorians, so casual about so much horror, would find this disturbing. But think about it. Death could strike almost without warning in the Victorian era. It was to be respected, not mocked. Formal burial rites are often core to a culture and elaborate taboos grow up around them. Interfering with them was especially loathed throughout most cultures in history. They can be especially precious to a culture in times of high mortality, particularly when the mortality itself isn't well understood. What Dickens was describing was well known though. It was meant to slap the audience across the face. It said, even if you die, your deeds will still affect you. His readers were highly conscious that everything in Victorian society had value to someone further down the social scale. Lords gave away worn-out clothes to less favoured members of a household. Middle-class men sold old suits, which were recut and sold to clerks like Bob Cratchit. His broken boots might be sold again to a rag-and-bone man who would cut up the leather for further use. The cast-off laces might be stolen by street children and sold. Their pennies were then spent on dubious street food, turned into waste that was gathered by the tanners. The broken buttons on their clothes would be stolen from their corpses when they died on the street and sold on again. Dickens' readers knew that anything that could be stolen from Scrooge's corpse would find many buyers on a future journey. Scrooge desperately seeks for someone who had at least some emotion about his passing, but can only be shown creditors who are relieved that his brutal collection of debt will be turned over to another creditor, giving them perhaps time to salvage the situation. And so the story passes to the Cratchits and the consequences of the death of Tiny Tim. He is clearly missed, and his father's care of his grave is remarked on, in sharp contrast to Scrooge. And then Scrooge is taken to the inevitable last point of the journey. It has to be his own grave. That might seem like a cliché today, and not too scary, but this is where that trope was really born. Here, a person knows with certainty that the end has been reached. You can't change anything, and death inevitably claims you. Quote, Before I draw nearer to that stone which you point, said Scrooge, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of, of the things that will be, or, or are they shadows of things that may only be? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends, to which, if persevered in, they must lead, said Scrooge. 
But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. End quote. Now, this is straying into proper sci-fi territory. Luckily, Dickens doesn't have to explore the question of timelines, multiverses or fixed events or paradoxes. He is dealing with the supernatural. So Scrooge can change what he is seeing in the future. It is a probable future rather than a fixed future. So a completely changed Scrooge is returned to the present if he really left it. He opens the windows and sees a boy loitering in the street. He asks him what day it is. Then he asks the boy to go to the poulterer to buy the largest prize turkey. Again, there's a nice window into Victorian London there. The boy is reasonably well dressed, so not a street lark. He gives a slang expression of disbelief. Walker, at the amount Scrooge offers to pay him. Notice that it is Christmas Day, but Scrooge clearly expects the shop to be open for business. This is a reminder that food was not always as easy to store, so items like a large turkey might well be bought fresh just before use. It is dispatched Bob Cratchit's in a cab. I have no idea how he would have felt or if he could have really cooked it. Scrooge makes peace with his nephew, gives Bob another rise in salary, and is a completely changed and extremely kindly man. It is a beautiful little story. It can be adapted endlessly. It has a classic structure, and can be just a simple Christmas story. Alternatively, you can dig in to Victorian themes or psychoanalysis, or many other topics. It really is a short work, and I recommend you read it. But, as maybe a New Year treat, I might do another special episode where I give you an audiobook-style reading of the complete work. Who knows, we'll see if people email me in, and if I get enough requests for it, I might give it a go for you. Okay, that's our first Christmas special done. The next main episode will be coming out at the beginning of February, but I'll get some mini-sodes out in between. Thank you so much for such a wonderful first year of the podcast. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy this episode and Merry Christmas, my friends. Okay, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can reach me at the email, ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com on Twitter or via the Facebook page. Also, don't forget to check out the website at ageofvictoriapodcast.com and please do leave a review on iTunes. Thanks and take care.